footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening, and welcome to your nightmares. And another episode of your favorite horror storytelling podcast, Dark Softly Tales, this is your host, Mav. The holidays are upon us, and I hope everyone is holding up. We are just about at the two-year anniversary, and wow, what strange times we are in. I wonder if in 20 years from now, we'll look back at these days like they did in this Lovecraftian tale and call this the strange times. Sometimes I feel a sense of unreality when I see everyone wearing masks, and I'm not sure what is happening in the surrounding states or countries, but the price of rent here has gone up hundreds of dollars, in some places thousands of dollars. And that absolutely blows my mind that people are raising the rent in these times. It's hard enough trying to find a job in this economy, let alone just trying to pay for the basic necessities. But when you up the rent by 500 bucks with just a 30-day notice, man. And then the heating prices are up, gas prices, food prices. All this to say is if you're struggling out there with just trying to make the rent, take care of the kids, much less add the stress of the holiday season, whether it's Christmas shopping, or maybe you get depression around this time of year, or maybe you're estranged from your family. Whatever it may be, just know that you are not alone. Go inside yourself, find your center, find what's true for you, and always go in the direction that is best for you, no matter what the outside is telling you to do. Oof, I didn't mean to go there, but it felt like someone needed to hear that today. So, we have come to the very end of H.P. Lovecraft's The Color from Space. I was thinking as I narrated this ending that one of the scariest things about this story is how this poor family is slowly going mad and desperately needs an intervention. And the rest of the society completely avoids them out of fear, as if the meteor had never fallen. The community continues on their day-to-day in denial of what's happening to this poor family because they want things to get back to normal. They eventually send a crew out to investigate, but by then, as we learned in last week's episode, it was too late. The whole town fell apart. I can't help but think, what if the town stepped in and helped this family out, got them out of there, helped them set up the farm somewhere else? The thing wouldn't have had anything to feed on and would eventually leave. But no. Human tendencies, dealing with the unknown, as Lovecraft writes over and over, is to either attack it or deny it. In order to deny something, you have to avoid whatever reminds you of it, so the poor Gardner family was left to themselves, other than the occasional check-in by our dear Amy. It makes me think of today, how we have this virus and how we all want things to go back to normal. What do we do? Do we deny it and avoid those that it affects? 
do we attack it and go overboard by trying to control it? Based on history, both of these methods are pretty typical of human behavior. And in a strange way, with a virus, it feels like we are trapped in a Lovecraftian story. And, my dear listeners, I certainly hope that is not the case. It's stories like these, as dark as it is, that gives me hope. Because they teach us lessons about our past, about our future. And when we can stop and take a few minutes to think about these things and what they mean to us individually, we can break the patterns and make different choices for ourselves and choose different realities. Be co-creators in which direction our own stories go, our life path, our lives. Now, sit back, turn the lights down low, and let's creep down the dark and lonely road to Nahum's farm, where the trees shimmer as they shouldn't, and where something sinister hides in the old well. There's nothing to be afraid of. Is there? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft Narrated by Mav Sky Part 4 It was the coroner, seated near a window overlooking the yard, who first noticed the glow about the well. Night had fully set in, and all the abhorrent grounds seemed faintly luminous with more than the fitful moonbeams. But this new glow was something definite and distinct, and appeared to shoot up from the black pit like a softened ray from a searchlight, giving dull reflections in the little ground pools where the water had been emptied. It had a very queer color, and as all the men clustered round the window, Amy gave a violent start, for the strange beam of ghastly miasma was to him of no unfamiliar hue. He had seen that color before, and feared to think what it might mean. He had seen it in the nasty, brittle globule in that arrow light two summers ago, had seen it in the crazy vegetation of the springtime, and had thought he had seen it for an instant that very morning against the small, barred window of that terrible attic room where nameless things had happened. It had flashed there a second, and a clammy and hateful current of vapor had brushed past him. And then poor Nahum had been taken by something of that color. He had said so at the last, said it was like the globule on the plant. After that had come the runaway in the yard, and the splash in the well. And now that well was belching forth to the night a pale, insidious beam of the same demonic tint. As credit to the alertness of Amy's mind that he puzzled even at the tense moment over a point which was essentially scientific, he could not but wonder at his gleaning of the same impression from a vapor glimpsed in the daytime, against the window opening on the morning sky, and from a nocturnal exhalation seen as a phosphorescent mist against the black and blasted landscape. It wasn't right. 
It was against nature. And he thought of those terrible last words of his stricken friend. It come from some place where things ain't as they is here. One of them professors said so. All three horses outside, tied to a pair of shriveled saplings by the road, were now neighing and pawing frantically. The wagon driver started for the door to do something, but Amy laid a shaky hand on his shoulder. Don't go out there, he whispered. There's more to this now what we know. Nahum said something lived in the well that sucks your life out. He said it must be some at growed like a ball like one we'd seen in the meteor stone that fell a year ago. June sucks and burns, he said, and it's just a cloud of color like that light out there now, and you can hardly see and can't tell what it is. Nahum thought it feeds on everything living and gets stronger all the time. He's seen it last week. Must be something from away off in the sky, like the men from the college last year says the meteor stone was. The way it's made, and the way it works, ain't like no way of God's world. So the men paused indecisively as the light from the well grew stronger, and the hitched horses pawed and whinnied at an increasing frenzy. It was truly an awful moment with terror in that ancient and accursed house itself. Four monstrous sets of fragments, two from the house and two from the well and the woodshed behind, and that shaft of unknown and unholy iridescence from the slimy depths in front. Emmy had restrained the driver on impulse, forgetting how uninjured he himself was after the clammy brushing of that colored vapor in the attic room. Perhaps it is just as well that he acted as he did. No one will ever know what was abroad that night, and that the blasphemy from beyond had not so far hurt any human of unweakened mind. There is no telling what it might have done at the last moment, and with its seemingly increased strength, it was too soon to display beneath the half-clouded, moonlit sky. All at once, one of the detectives at the window gave a short, sharp, gasp. The others looked at him, and then quickly followed his own gaze upward to the point at which its idle straying had been suddenly arrested. There was no need for words. What had been disputed in country gossip was disputable no longer. And it is because of the thing which every man of that party agreed in whispering later on, that the strange days are never talked about in Arkham. It is necessary to premise that there was no wind at that hour of the evening. One did arise not long afterward, but there was absolutely none then. Even the dry tips of the lingering hedge mustard, gray and blighted, and the fringe on the roof of the standing Democrat wagon were unstirred. And yet amid that tense, godless calm, the high bare boughs of all the trees in the yard were moving. They were twitching, morbidly, spasmically, clawing and convulsive and epileptic madness at the moonlit clouds. 
scratching in the noxious air as if jerked by some alleyed and bodiless line of linkage with subterranean horrors writhing and struggling below the black roots. Not a man breathed for several seconds. Then a cloud of darker depth passed over the moon, and the silhouette of clutching branches faded out momentarily. At this, there was a general cry, muffled with awe, but husky and almost identical from every throat, for the terror had not faded with the silhouette. And in a fearsome instant of deeper darkness, the watchers saw wiggling at the treetop height a thousand tiny points of faint and unhallowed radiance. Tipping each bow like the fire of St. Elmo, or the flames that come down on the Apostle's head at Pentecost. It was a monstrous constellation of unnatural light, like a glutted swarm of corpse-fed fireflies dancing hellish sarabands over an accursed marsh. And its color was that same nameless intrusion, which Amy had come to recognize and dread. All the while, the shaft of phosphorescence from the well was getting brighter and brighter bringing to the minds of the huddled men a sense of doom and abnormality which far outraced any image their conscious minds could form. It was no longer shining out, it was pouring out. And as the shapeless stream of unplaceable color left the well, it seemed to flow directly into the sky. The veterinary shivered, and walked to the front door to drop the extra heavy bar across it. Amy shook no less, and had to tug and point for lack of controllable voice when he wished to draw notice to the growing luminosity of the trees. The neighing and stamping of the horses had become utterly frightful, but not a soul of that group in the house would have ventured forth for any earthly reward. With the moments, the shining of the trees increased, while their restless branches seemed to strain more and more toward verticality. The wood of the well sweep was shining now, and presently a policeman dumbly pointed to some wooden sheds and beehives near the stone wall on the west. They were commencing to shine too, though the tethered vehicles of the visitors seemed so far unaffected. There was a wild commotion and clopping in the road, and as Emmy quenched the lamp for better seeing, they realized that the span of frantic greys had broken their sapling and run off with the Democrat wagon. The shock served to loosen several tongues, and embarrassed whispers were exchanged. It spreads on everything organic that's been around here, muttered the medical examiner. No one replied. But the man who had been in the well gave a hint that his long pull must have stirred up something intangible. It was awful, he added. There was no bottom at all, just ooze and bubbles and the feeling of something lurking under there. Amy's horse still pawed and screamed deafeningly in the road outside and nearly drowned its owner's quaint quaver as he mumbled his formless reflections. It come from that stone. It growed down there. It got everything living. It fed itself on him, mind and body. Thad and Merwin, Zenis and Nabby, Nahum was the last. They all drunk the water. 
They get strong on them, and they come from beyond, where things ain't like they be here. Now it's going home. At this point, as the column of unknown color flared suddenly stronger and began to weave itself into fantastic suggestions of shape, which each spectator described differently, there came from poor tethered hero such a sound as no man before or since ever heard from a horse. Every person in that low-pitched sitting room stopped his ears, and Amy turned away from the window in horror and nausea. Words cannot convey it. When Amy looked out again, the hapless beast lay huddled inert on the moonlit ground between the splintered shafts of the buggy. That was the last of Hero, till they buried him the next day. But the present was no time to mourn, for almost at this instant a detective silently called attention to something terrible in the very room with them. In the absence of the lamplight, it was clear that a faint phosphorescence had begun to pervade the entire apartment. It glowed on the broad planked floor and the fragment of rag carpet, and shimmered over the sashes of the small paned windows. It ran up and down the exposed corner posts, coruscated about the shelf and mantel, and inflected the very doors and furniture. Each minute saw it strengthen, and at last it was very plain that healthy living things must leave that house. Amy showed them the back door and the path up through the fields to the ten-acre pasture. They walked and stumbled as in a dream and did not dare look back till they were far away on the high ground. They were glad of the path, for they could not have gone the front way by the well. It was bad enough passing the glowing barn and sheds and those shining orchard trees with their gnarled, fiendish contours. But thank heaven the branches did their worst twitching high up. The moon went under some very black clouds as they crossed the rustic bridge over Chapman's Brook, and it was blind groping from there to the open meadows. When they looked back toward the valley and the distant gardener place at the bottom, they saw a fearsome sight. At the farm was shining with a hideous, unknown blend of color. Trees, buildings, and even such grass and herbage as had not been wholly changed to lethal gray bristleness. The boughs were all straining skyward, tipped with tongues of foul flame, and lambent tricklings of the same monstrous fire were creeping about the ridge poles of the house barns and sheds. It was a scene from a vision of Fusely, and over all the rest reigned the riot of luminous amorphousness, that alien and undimensioned rainbow of cryptic poison from the well, seething, feeling, lapping, reaching, scintillating, straining, and bubbling in its cosmic and unrecognizable chromatism. Then, without warning, the hideous thing shot vertically up toward the sky like a rocket or meteor, leaving behind no trail and disappearing through a round and curiously regular hole in the clouds before any man could gasp or cry out. No watcher can ever forget that sight, 
and Ami stared blankly at the stars of Cygnus, Danib, twinkling above the others, where the unknown color had melted into the Milky Way. But his gaze was the next moment called swiftly to Earth by the crackling in the valley. It was just that, only a wooden ripping and crackling, and not an explosion, as so many others of the party vowed. Yet the outcome was the same, for in one feverish kaleidoscopic instant, there burst up from that doomed and accursed farm a gleamingly eruptive cataclysm of unnatural sparks and substance, blurring the glance of the few who saw it, and sending forth to the zenith a bombarding cloudburst of such colored and fantastic fragments as our universe must needs disown. Through quickly reclosing vapors, they followed the great morbidity that had vanished, and in another second, they had vanished too. Behind and below was only a darkness to which the men dared not return, and all about was mounting wind which seemed to sweep down in black, frore gusts from interstellar space. It shrieked and howled and lashed the fields and distorted woods in a mad cosmic frenzy, till soon the trembling party realized it would be no use waiting for the moon to show what was left down there at Nahum's. Too odd even to hint theories, the seven shaking men trudged back toward Arkham by the North Road. Amy was worse than his fellows, and begged them to see him inside his own kitchen. Instead of keeping straight on to town, he did not wish to cross the blighted, wind-whipped woods alone to his home on the main road, for he had had an added shock that the others were spared, and was crushed forever with a brooding fear he dared not even mention for many years to come. As the rest of the watchers on that tempestuous hill had stolidly set their faces towards the road, Amy had looked back an instant at the shadowed valley of desolation, so lately sheltering his ill-starred friend. And from that stricken, faraway spot he had seen something feebly rise, only to sink down again upon the place from which that great shapeless horror had shot into the sky. It was just the color but not any color of our earth or heaven. And because Amy recognized that color and knew that this last faint remnant must still lurk down there in the well, he has never been quite right since. Amy would never go near the place again. It is 44 years now since the horror has happened, but he has never been there and will be glad when the new reservoir blots it out. I shall be glad too, for I do not like the way the sunlight changed color around the mouth of that abandoned well I passed. I hope the water will always be very deep, but even so, I shall never drink it. I do not think I shall visit the Arkham country hereafter. Three of the men who had been with Amy returned the next morning to see the ruins by daylight, but there were not any real ruins, only the bricks of the chimney the stones of the cellar, some mineral and metallic litter here and there, and the rim of that nefandous well, save for Amy's dead horse, which they towed away and buried, 
and the buggy which they shortly returned to him, everything that has ever been living had gone. Five eldritch acres of dusty gray desert remained, nor has anything ever grown there since. To this day, it sprawls open to the sky like a great spot eaten by acid in the woods and fields, and the few who have ever dared to glimpse it in spite of the rural tales have named it the Blasted Heath. The rural tales are queer. They might even be queerer if city men and college chemists could be interested enough to analyze the water from that disused well, or the gray dust that no wind seems to disperse. Botanists, too, ought to study the stunted flora on the borders of that spot, for they might shed light on the country notion that the blight is spreading, little by little, perhaps an inch a year. People say the color of the neighboring herbage is not quite right in the spring, and that wild things leave queer prints in the light winter snow. Snow never seems quite so heavy on the blasted heath as it is elsewhere. Horses, the few that are left in this motor age, grow skittish in the silent valley, and hunters cannot depend on their dogs too near the splotch of grayish dust. They say the mental influences are very bad too. Numbers went queer in the years after Nahum's taking, and always they lacked the power to get away. Then the stronger-minded folk all left the region, and only the foreigners tried to live in the crumbling old homesteads. They could not stay, though, and one sometimes wonders what insight beyond ours their wild, weird stories of whispered magic have given them. Their dreams at night, they protest, are very horrible in that grotesque country, and surely... The very look of the dark realm is enough to stir a morbid fancy. No traveler has ever escaped a sense of strangeness in those deep ravines, and artists shiver as they paint thick woods whose mystery is as much of the spirits as of the eye. I myself am curious about the sensation I derived from my one lone walk before Amy told me his tale. When twilight came, I had vaguely wished some clouds would gather, for an odd timidity about the deep skyey voids above had crept into my soul. Do not ask me for my opinion. I do not know. That is all. There was no one but Amy to question, for Arkham people will not talk about the strange days, and all three professors who saw the aerolite and its colored globule are dead. There were other globules, depending upon that. One must have fed itself and escaped, and probably there is another which was too late. No doubt it is still down the well. I know there was something wrong with the sunlight I saw above the miasmal brink. The rustics say the blight creeps an inch a year, so perhaps there is a kind of growth or nourishment even now. But whatever demon hatchling is there, it must be tethered to something, or else it would quickly spread. Is it fastened to the roots of those trees that claw the air? One of the current Arkham tales is about fat oaks that shine and move, as they ought not to do at night. What it is, only God knows. 
In terms of matter, I suppose, the thing Amy described would be called a gas. But this gas obeyed the laws that are not of our cosmos. This was no fruit of such worlds, and suns as shine on the telescopes and photographic plates of our observatories. There was no breath from the skies whose motion and dimensions our astronomers measure or deem too vast to measure. It was just a color out of space, a frightful messenger from unformed realms of infinity beyond all nature as we know it, from realms whom mere existence stuns the brain and numbs us with the black extra-cosmic gulfs it throws open before our frenzied eyes. I doubt very much if Amy consciously lied to me, and I do not think his tale was all a freak of madness as the townsfolk had forewarned. Something terrible came to the hills and valleys on that meteor, and something terrible, though I know not in what proportion, still remains. I shall be glad to see the water come. Meanwhile, I hope nothing will happen to Amy. He saw so much of the thing, and its influence was so insidious. Why has he never been able to move away? How clearly he recalled those dying words of Nahum's. Can't get away. Draws ye. Ye know something's coming at ye, but tain't no use. Amy is such a good old man. When the reservoir gang gets to work, I must write the chief engineer to keep a sharp watch on him. I would hate to think of him as the gray, twisted, brittle monstrosity which persists more and more. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mavsky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mavsky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today. <laughs>